0: So I feel like my Twitter timeline this week has been taken over by a discussion of complex words that I don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. Because between Apple with the Mac Pro Mm -hmm. and uh, with the GPU from NVIDIA and with the news out of Microsoft, I feel like everyone knows about teraflops and GPUs and other things that I don't (laughs) understand and I don't know what is going on. Yeah, this uh,
1: Project Scorpio news today is very advanced right i mean and that, i guess that was exactly what they were going for so if you haven't seen it and and i guess maybe for a bit of a refresher uh, project scorpio is the code name for microsoft's next version of the xbox it's a it's a mid cycle revision to the hardware the console hardware like how we got the ps4 pro there's going to be a more powerful xbox before the next Full version of the Xbox. It's like a beefed up version of the Xbox One, effectively. And today, um, there was a video posted by is, is Digital Foundry is part of Eurogamer, right?
0: I I think so. Yeah.
1: So Digital Foundry, as a like a YouTube channel and and stuff like that, then they're part of Eurogamer. They got invited out to Redmond by Microsoft to get what is effectively all of the leaks you would get delivered to someone.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's the leak straight from the source, basically. And uh, they invited uh, Digital Foundry out for a full-on briefing, really, about uh, Scorpio and not just the technical aspects, which there are plenty of those, but also for the motivation behind the Xbox. And Eurogamer has a series of articles and videos, uh, each with a, you know, trying to address a different part of the story. So there's the main uh, article where they detail the GPU and the CPU, the, the actual engineering that that is going into Project Scorpio, which is still not a uh, final name, which is supposedly getting a big E3 reveal. And we still don't even know what the console is going to look like. But I noticed that in their articles, Eurogamer... In each article, really, they they included uh, this sentence that the hardware design is going to pleasantly surprise you. So I'm really interested in that. And what does that even mean? I don't know. It feels like Microsoft made sure, you know, with the PR, to, hey, please include this line every time you talk about the console. Uh, uh, I've seen this uh, in a bunch of the videos that they made and also in the the articles. The hardware design is going to pleasantly surprise you, whatever that means. We do know, however that it's going to be um, a fresh start for Microsoft in many ways, and at least for the Xbox department, because they want to win back the trust of the developers and the gaming community. Of course, that depends upon the games. Um, But yeah, as for the console itself, we don't know what shape it's going to be. We don't know about the controllers. We just know, like the Xbox One S, it's going to have a built-in power brick. So no external power brick, but that's all we know. And I guess the main story here is the actual uh, stuff. It's the performance, right? It's It's it's, the performance of the console. And I'm going to ask Shahid here what he thinks, but I've noted some stats that even I can understand, which is 30% faster CPU and 4.6 times more powerful GPU compared to the previous Xbox. And my takeaway is that now developers can use up to 8 gigabytes of RAM, uh in their games because this console has 12 gigabytes of RAM and Eurogamer assumes that 4 gigs are going to be reserved for the operating system or for the console so developers can now address a much higher RAM capacity which in theory, combined with the CPU and combined with the GPU should basically mean a lot more powerful games more powerful yeah. than PlayStation 4 Pro more powerful everything
1: they're saying native 4k right that's that's native, the big thing native 4k native
0: 4k yeah and they uh Microsoft showed them this demo of the Forza uh Forza 6 the racing game yep. um and the story here according to Microsoft and Eurogamer is the team behind Forza they took the engine from the Xbox 1 and they ported it over to Scorpio in just 2 days and in two days, they managed to hit native 4K 60 frames per second all the time with a GPU usage of about 60, 65%. And Eurogamer said it looked impressive. So Shahid, what does
2: this hardware say to you? Power. <laughs> Obscene power. It does sound like it's going to be able... Not in all games, but on enough games to give us 4K gameplay at 60 frames per second. One of the interesting things for me is that they've increased memory bandwidth massively as well. Because what would have been the point had they had all of this extra power and not been able to shutter, uh, shuttle the bigger textures that would be required to look great at 4k yeah and one of the things that excited me beyond that was that they have way more compute units now ideally they would have gone for more than 40 but at this point you know Who cares? It's got a faster clock as well. The GPU. Shahid, what is a compute unit? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's
0: forty of them, man. Come on, I think that's enough. No, it's not uh, enough. I'll
2: do a really, really quick diversion. Really Uh quick. I'll, I'll try and keep this as straightforward as possible. Okay. The most important element. I would say, nowadays, in the graphical prowess of a game is how well it takes advantage of the GPU. GPUs have become, over the last, I would say, five to eight years, maybe, more more five, especially in the PC world, much more dependent on parallel processing. Mm-hmm. They become... The most efficient parallel processing device at the same time. What does that mean? That means they can process a truckload of pixels at the same time. If you're chucking loads of pixels at the screen, and in doing so, you're putting them through all kinds of 3D maths, jiggery pokery, uh, vertex transformations, um, then you're doing uh, pixel shading or rather fragment shading and then chucking them out. Well, that's a very repetitive operation right Mm -hmm. which means it's it lends itself really well to heavy parallelization Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about modern gpus also is that you can do compute on them that is traditional compute instead of just stuff that is entirely about graphics right mm. this can be very useful for any task that requires heavy parallel processing in fact gpus have gone so far ahead at cp of cpus it's not even funny you know you can have just a crazy amount of threads running at the same time right okay uh, uh you know what a thread is right
1: yeah i mean it just, this is this is like to tie it back around this is what apple was banking on with the mac pro right Yes. They were they were going down the GPU route even though I mean obviously it didn't work mm, for them. But they, like I've been reading a lot about this in the last few yeah. years. <laughs>
2: they they were slightly different in that what they were banking on was multiple GPUs. Multiple GPUs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. But that's not the way things are gone. The way things are gone is that GPUs themselves have become massively parallel and massively capable of compute. Okay. So their call was, you know what, we reckon loads of GPUs stacked in parallel are going to be the future. But what happened was that the the video card manufacturers just made their existing GPUs huh. better and better and better and more and more and more parallel right. and let's let's ignore the terminology for now the most important thing is is it faster and is it more parallel that's what um compute units tell you there are a whole bunch of other Uh, bits of terminology that we shouldn't bore ourselves with including the likes of a warp and so on Mm. we won't get into that it's not necessary the important point is is this device capable of chucking an obscene number of pixels at the screen and all of them being processed really well lit really well you know all of the effects that you could throw at the screen, like HDR, for example, because they've Mm. talked about that a fair bit. Can it do all of that stuff? And can it do it in real time? And can it do it 4K? Does it have the memory bandwidth to sustain that? And the answer seems to be probably, probably they seem to have used their uh, PIX tool, which by the way, throughout the industry is highly regarded as one of the best optimization tools in video games. They've used that on a bunch of games to try and see just how efficient they can make the new architecture. And they seem to have tuned the architecture in advance, having looked at what existing games are doing, which is very smart. Yeah. very smart. They seem to have unified the memory architecture as well. That seemed like such
1: a weird thing to hinge on to me because it seemed so logical. And the point was that because this is like a mid-cycle revision, what what uh, Microsoft did was look at some of their most popular games, find out where the problem points were, and then optimize the hardware to meet the way that game engines and game developers are making their games, and like to help like to basically unclog the bottlenecks. And then it's like, very smart. It, but it seems like that's what you would do. But obviously, it's not the way it's done. But like it just when I hear it, like not really knowing how this stuff's made, I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, that, that's, that seems very logical. Uh, but, but obviously, for whatever
2: reason, it's just not done this way. The, the reason it's not done this way is usually the genera- generation gaps are much larger. And so right. what you're talking about is an order of magnitude usually... Increase in power between generations, and sometimes that requires a completely new strategy. Uh, and that there is, that isn't the case this time, right? No, it's just like it's
1: incremental. increases rather yeah. than like new architecture, because that's not where we are anymore. Mm. That's not exactly. that's not the world we live in anymore. When it comes so to when
0: games. Microsoft says we're going to make it possible for older Xbox One games and even the emulated Xbox Three Sixty games to look better and be faster, you know, with less frame, fewer frame rate drops and, you know, better textures, whatever. That means that the Scorpio will be able to take in whatever came before and just make it pre- prettier, no matter if the developer optimizes specifically for the Scorpio or not, just straight out of the box. It's going to be an improvement if you try to run an Xbox One game from two years ago. It's going to look better. And that's because it's an improvement on the existing architecture rather than just zagging away and doing something completely different. Is that what this all means? It's a great idea in theory, mm. but
2: I've yet to see it ever happen in practice.
0: Okay. Yeah. Without at least some changes. Mm. You
2: know, any kind of... St- even with PC games, you know, unless the game is really well engineered. And most PC games, particularly AAA games, really are well-engineered nowadays, it will be very hard for that game to take advantage of additional power because, you know, the the, the problem with that is, let, let's say you've got a piece of software, you've designed it for a particular uh, piece of architecture, are you going to spend the money, if you've already spent $100 million on development, are you going to spend the money for a scenario where just in case in two years' time your game is still selling, like crazy and mm-hmm. now there's more power available are mm-hmm, you going right. to do that very few mm-hmm. people do that some do i mean if you look at the history of Crytek, they were always about let's design for a pc that isn't built yet because <laughs> you know it yeah. will come and then our game will be great but most don't most try and target where the mass market is right now or where the mass market will be at the point of release but not a year or two or three years beyond release and because of that They generally tend to miss something that will mean that when the new architecture comes around, it's not possible for older software to take advantage of it. However, there might be some cheap tricks you could do, you know, like simple upscaling always works, especially if there's some filtering applied. Um, Right. And there are some modern games coming out that are a bit more savvy. So so we'll see. I mean I'm skeptical because I've never really seen it work effectively before, and there are usually technical and economical reasons why that doesn't mm-hmm. happen. I'm not saying it won't happen in this case, but I'd like to wait and see. And
1: like even even Digital Foundry were like they were a little bit skeptical and, and kind of hesitant to say like it's like look, okay, Forza was able to do this, but it's a very specific case for them. Right? Like they are there, right? It's like, they are Microsoft. It's built the way it should be built. Like, the hardware was tuned to help that game. And, like, you know, and that it is a unique situation, but it was possible for them to make these optimizations in a short period of time. But they kind of say, like, that doesn't mean it's going to be that way for everyone, right? I feel like they kind of, like, hinge on that a little bit, which is important.
0: Yeah,
2: I think that's fair.
0: What does this mean for people, for people? Players, gamers like me, just want to play a video game. What, th- what does this Scorpio mean? Is this like uh, a VR play from Microsoft? Are they getting ready, do you think, Shahid, to to release a VR accessory? Or does this only mean like we're going to get more good-looking games, more advanced games, ju- just going to look better and be faster, and they're going to be impressive on our 4K TVs? Or is there a deeper meaning to all of this?
2: there are two reasons. The first is status. Microsoft stroke Xbox still feel kind of stung about the way they lost round one against PlayStation.
1: And then round two, right? Because Sony upped it even further to become the most powerful
2: console, as well as the best-selling with the Pro, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the PS4 was already more powerful than the Xbox One. Um, And it took a while before Xbox games even came close. You know, the, the launch games were were not as good. There were some real deficiencies. But as people began, uh, became more used to the architecture, that improved, but still not to the level of the PS4 when it's exploited to the max. I mean, Forza is an amazing piece of software written by some of the most competent developers in the world. So it's no wonder that that was... Uh, portable in no time at all. It's no wonder that it took advantage of all of the upped hardware. But going back to Federico's question about what this means for uh, customers, well, status is the first thing. So yeah, it's a bit further down the line than the PS4 Pro, but at least they'll be able to say, you know what, if you are a hardcore gamer and you want to play 4K more often than not, then this is the baby for you so that's the status thing and and i would say the the second thing really is just to capture the hardcore market so the first thing is much more about status and much more about positioning the second thing is much more about what is their actual market and the market is clearly the hardcore market people who you know people who are kind of on the fence about buying PCs and would rather have a console, and here's a console that's comparable to a really good PC setup. And they can now play those games from their couch instead of on some extremely expensive PC rig. So I think that the, those are really the reasons. There's not that much more than that. I don't think it's a HoloLens play or a VR play. I could be wrong. But if it is, then obviously they need a machine that's powerful enough and ready enough that when their next bit of augmented technology whatever it is comes around there's a machine ready to uh be the home for it
1: now they did talk about vr i'm sure when they announced this like they mentioned vr capable and i'm surprised that that hasn't been brought up in all of this today and i wonder if there is a big announcement right that they're not talking about it because they've got their thing Right, whatever it's going to be. I mean, my outside bet is that you plug a Rift into this. That's what I think it will be.
2: It would make sense, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, because they have this partnership, right, with Oculus. And if they're really running at the power that they're running at, you know, there might be a way to try and get Rift games on this thing, right? The, I'm sure a lot of the, I mean, look, I, I don't know enough, but like with stuff like I know there's like DirectX and all that, it's all built in, right? This it is a PC. I'm sure it would be easier to get the Rift games onto here if it is as powerful as they claim it is, and I mean, if you could if you could do that, I mean that that is a a real jump, like a big jump for Xbox. Like that makes me incredibly interested in this console because then I don't need to get a PC to get a Rift.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So that would be really interesting. I, I'm 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 going to keep my eye out for that. I guess it's E3, but I do have a question. To your head. I want to get your opinion on this. Will Sony respond at E3? They notice this is coming. Do you think that they will just they're just gonna sit and wait it out now because there's you know they've kind of made their play, they they brought out the pro and now they'll just wait for the five? Like do you think that they will respond?
2: I don't think there's any need for PlayStation to respond at this point. They That's already have point. the hardware in the market. Yeah, they have you know, they already have they've already won the the war, right, for this round. I guess that they're good. I I I don't know um about winning the war as such. There does seem to be room for both of them. They are significantly in the lead. The thing that would be really cool at E3 to see are some games that show just what's possible when you optimize for PS4 Pro. So I think that would be a good thing to do. Like here we go. Here's what these games look like on PS4 Pro. Oh, by the way, you can still play them on the PS4, but we're not going to show you those videos. We're going to show you the PS4 Pro videos for all of this amazing stuff. And I would imagine that there will be a heavy focus on AAA again. Mm -hmm. There will be a heavy focus on what their first party and second party Uh, studios have been working on and it will be a heavy focus on ps4 pro and of course they have a vr offering in the market as well which happens to be the market leader at the top end so i would imagine there's also going to be a reasonable emphasis on psvr you know here's here's a success story of the previous year and here's what's coming next so that's what i would imagine i mean if i was a betting man and i'm not but if i was that's what i'd say playstation would do at e3
1: all right, we've spoken about, and the terms come up all the time, but you just mentioned them then, like third party, first party. We want to talk about that today, um, and we'll do that in just a moment. I can just ex- kind of dig into what these terms actually mean. So this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Use the offer code INSERTCOIN at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that allows you to build the website you want to build without having to worry about the stuff you don't want to have to worry about. You don't have anything to install. There's no patches, no security updates, no hosting stuff needed. You can get it all there. You can get a domain there. You get the templates there. You get 24-7 customer support if you want it. If you want to build a website that has a store to sell stuff, Squarespace has a store to let you sell stuff. You can create blogs. You can create sites for your band. You can create sites for anything no matter what it is you want to make squarespace gives you the tools to do it the award-winning templates look amazing on all sizes of screen they're all responsive so they look great on the phone on a tablet on a desktop it doesn't matter and you can go in and customize things without needing to dig into code all of the customization options are boxes that you check and drop downs you can choose fonts they integrate a bunch of beautiful fonts so you can choose exactly what you want Squarespace are a place I've used for so long because I don't know how to put a website together. Like I've never done it before. I don't want to learn. If I have a project I want to put online, I want to just get a Squarespace website because I know I can do it and I can make it look and feel and act the way that I want. And if maybe you thought to yourself, no, I know what I'm doing, but I bet there's somebody in your life that might need that help. And do you know what's better? Rather than you setting it up for them and you supporting them, just set them up with Squarespace. They have their own support teams. They'll take care of it. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month. You can sign up for a free trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. Then, use the offer code INSERTCOIN to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Remaster. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show, Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. All right, so first party, second party, third party. These are categorizations for developers, for development teams that put out games, right? And in the light of Zelda, which is arguably one of the greatest first-party games ever made, and we also have Horizon, right, which is I'm not actually sure whether that's first or second or third, honestly. But we have Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn on PlayStation Four. Maybe it's uh, a zero, but who knows? Yeah. I, it's this is the thing. It's very difficult to keep track of this stuff. We have out right now two games that are like absolutely incredible, like best in class, and some of the and you know like bet like for as as far as like a pairing between a game and a console go, they're perfect for each other, right? Mm-hmm. So, Shahid, what is a first-party game, and what is the difference? What makes something second-party and third-party, etc.?
2: The jargon of games I've always found somewhat annoying, but it all kind of makes sense. So let's go through some definitions very quickly before digging into why we have first, second, and third parties. So first-party is, let's say you have a, a developer. The developer can actually become first-party having not been first-party. So a first-party developer is actually wholly owned by a platform. Now, you can have a developer that's owned by a publisher, but that publisher will typically publish across multiple platforms. So they won't be a first-party developer as such. It is much more about platforms. And so you mentioned... Um Zelda and you mentioned Her- Horizon Zero Dawn they are both created by first party studios. Uh Zelda is created by um Nintendo's internal studio which is absolutely enormous. Um and uh Guerrilla uh make Horizon Zero Dawn having previously made the Killzone series. This is quite a departure for them. But both of these entities are wholly owned by Nintendo and Sony, respectively. Right. And a second party, this is where things get a little bit messier, a second party usually has some kind of exclusive relationship with a platform, but having said that, they are wholly or partially independent. And what that means is, sometimes the platform will have taken some kind of investment in the developer or have done a multi-title deal that ties them up to their platform for a while and allows them some degree of independence, but under certain conditions. And in return for that, obviously, you get to work with the platform, you get all the marketing and and so on. You lose a little bit of your liberty and you get a bit of security. That's a Hmm. trade-off. And a third party is basically some entity, either a developer or a publisher, that is not owned in any way or tied down in any way by a platform. Having said that, they can easily, as third parties, enter into deals where they offer perhaps some windowed exclusivity on a DLC. You might have seen that kind of thing. Or some windowed exclusivity on uh, beta access to a game, and you might have seen some of that, or some kind of special version of the game. So those are the definitions. Does that clear things up a little bit? I think so. I yeah. think so. Uh,
0: so, what are other examples of second parties? Because to me, that's the trickiest one to figure out if you don't know uh, what the deal is between the the you know the the console vendor and and the developers. Are there any notable examples of the second party type of game studios that you can think of?
2: Yes. So, I'll have to dig into my PlayStation experience, of course, but. Uh, the first Little Big Planet was created, as you know, by Media Molecule, who were an independent studio who entered into a second-party relationship with Sony. Mm. But obviously, Mm. they were so damn good that Sony had little choice but to jump in and buy them.
1: And so, like, when when a second party comes around, it's like, hey, we are this company, we're building this game. And then the platform vendor's like, that game looks really good. How about you just make that game for us and
2: never for anybody else? Is that kind of how that... Ends up coming about? That's it. Right. That's it. Okay. Of course, that's becoming harder and harder because to do that, right, to be a second party, what you're, what you're doing is you're turning down potential revenue for tons of other platforms. So it really has to be a very sweet deal. The advantage you have of going second party is you will be given that platform's heavy attention, yeah. both in production yeah. support and in marketing support. So the likelihood of success as an independent or partially independent developer, will be much greater. Because
0: hmm. okay. you get
2: the whole hose of everything. Yeah. You get it. Right, right. right. Okay. I mean, look how much publicity Little Big Planet got. Look how much love that got. You have to ask yourself, if that had been a multi-platform title, independently developed, could it have had the same reach? We'll never know, of course. It mm-hmm. might have done. But what developers do is they make the trade-off. They say, well, you know what? We love this game. We want a little bit of security. We want it to get a lot of attention. And this is a good fit for us. This is a good partner right now. Let's work with them. So they're, uh, they were a very good example before they became um, a wholly owned PlayStation first party studio. And another example, one of my favorite developers in the world, is Housemark. They are not wholly owned by PlayStation. In fact, I'm not sure they're even partly owned. But they've been doing great games for PlayStation for so long that they continue to have a really good second-party relationship with the XDev Studios, who are um, Europe's publishing arm for first-party software. This is getting confusing, right? Mm -hmm. Let me try and make it a bit clearer. Sony publishes software. They publish their own software, and they publish software by other people. Mm -hmm. If they publish software by other people that's exclusive, that's called second-party software. Right, A developer isn't actually a second-party developer. They can call themselves that. What they are entering into when they do something like that, like Housemark, is a second-party relationship. But they're still pretty much independent. They might be wholly independent, or they might be partly independent, but really it's a relationship that's second-party a okay. third is when they're completely separate,
1: and they make games for whoever they want, and their whoever games are they across want. all platforms, and it's they've got nothing to do with them, right? It's like they will pitch every game and etc. Like in second party relationships, does the platform vendor ever like pitch a game to them and say like this is the type of game we're looking for? Do you want to
2: make it? Oh, sure, those conversations happen all the time. Right. And sometimes what happens is that if you've got a great second-party relationship with an independent developer and you really trust them, you might have some IP that you want to reboot or bring back or whatever, and then you do it like that. And that's happened uh, okay. quite a lot in the past. So it's like we have this character we want to
1: make a new game for. We know you can make good games like this. Why don't you take it? Yeah, or
2: right. they, Take okay. this or take this old game and remaster it. Yeah, right. so like the God of War remasters were done like that. Mm-hmm. And what's Naughty Dog? <laughs> I can never remember.
0: <laughs> that's the tricky question.
2: Naughty Dog is first party. Okay. Did they start out that way? Yeah, it started off as an independent studio. Okay. Um, in fact, originally they were called Jam, I think. And they started back in 1984. So that's a long time ago. And they got bought out by PlayStation. And became an integral part of PlayStation, in fact. I remember at the beginning of the PS3 era, they came up with what's called the Ice Engine, which was then um, used by other uh, parties within PlayStation as well. So that's that's very unusual. Um, you rarely get a developer that's so good that their technology gets shared. It usually happens within the corporation so yeah for example playstation might be working on their internal studios you're the ones who are actually at the playstation offices creating technology that's shared out not just to other first parties but to third parties as well so that was quite unusual but yeah they were definitely independent to begin with um and uh created some amazing games before they were bought by playstation
1: it seems like the most
2: big uh
1: developers right they have Multiple separate teams of first party developers within them, right? It's not just like we have uh, Sony Entertainment and we have like our teams that are like just around the globe, right? So we just, I know that Sony have, they have like teams like Santa Monica and stuff like that. But they also have these companies, right? Like Naughty Dog, which look and act like an independent thing, right? Their
2: own branding and everything. Why is that? It's very important for the best developers in the world who are bought out by a first party or by a platform to retain their um, spirit and to retain their ethos and their culture. Right, right. Because it was that that created the quality in the first place. Okay. And if you get corporatized, you lose that. And there are plenty of examples. I won't mention names, or where that has happened, not necessarily with platforms, with some publishers as well. A publisher buys a studio and then completely screws it up. Um, and it doesn't just happen in video games, of course. This happens in just about every business, you know, where it's the talent you're after, or it's a property you're after, or you don't know what you're after. You just know that can't be in the market competing against you, right? So that happens in every business in the world, particularly digital business. But yeah, I, mean, I, I, I would say... Um, a company, take a company like Media Molecule. Part of the conditions, I don't know this for sure, but I know their culture from afar and from reputation and from mutual friends and directly from some of the people who work there. Part of the deal of going with PlayStation was, you know what? We need to carry on having our own culture. We need to carry on working the way we work because that's what delivered this this quality. And they got that. And so for a few stars, that definitely happens. Now, the only time that power goes away, as you can imagine in any situation, is if they ever mess up. But Naughty Dog, do not mess up. Media Molecule, do not mess up. And and that's the way it is with some of the best acquired developers. I mean, I've talked about PlayStation. Of course, there are plenty of other developers out there for other platforms as well, but um, The Nintendo relationships tend to be the most opaque because they're much more secretive. So they have have this division called EPD. It's a division that um, got created by a merger and an internal restructure about 18 months ago. But that's the division that created uh, Breath of the Wild. And they're separated across Tokyo and Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And they've got absolutely tons of employees. So that doesn't really have anything other than a traditional... Uh, Nintendo culture, which is very Japanese, right? Mm, so yeah. they have they have a great bunch of creatives, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't you know? You could put those people anywhere, and they would still create amazing stuff. But other in- examples, uh, more complex ones, include Bungie, who <laughs> you know, who started off as an independent developer way back in the day, making games like Marathon on the Mac. They yeah. only did Mac stuff, you know. They, that's what they loved, and then um, Bungie got bought by uh Microsoft. Microsoft actually started off by um you know working with them. I think I'm not 100 percent sure about this one. I'm pretty sure there was a second party relationship before they bought them out. But then Bungie went independent again. But here's the interesting thing the IP for Halo, which is Hmm. kind of like a reskinned version of Marathon, um essentially, I think that's probably being a little bit harsh, but yeah. A, little
0: bit, just it was,
2: a little bit. It was one of the most on... successful game franchises of all hey, time. But... No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not missing it. I, I loved Halo. I've got some great stories about Halo and my kids. Um, we loved Halo. So, no, no, no. It's not that. It's that the, the spirit of the game. You could tell. Yes, if you're a Mac yeah. lover, you could tell it came from a marathon. I probably phrased that a little bit badly. So, you know, feel free to give me a virtual. I think slap. the
1: best, better way to say it is like the original idea was Marathon and then they made Halo. Right, like it was the next iteration of the How idea. About that they Halo had. was
2: a spiritual successor. There you go. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah, good, good work, work it. everyone. Good work. <laughs>
0: that is that is good English, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the
2: interesting thing is that Halo stayed with Microsoft. But of course, Bungie not too worried because of course they, they had the ability to create new IP. Mm. And they went off and
0: created Destiny. <laughs> yeah, a boy did so, they, right? <laughs> so it can. So the reverse can happen. So if you're uh, a first, uh, a second party relationship, or even a first party, you can go back to being an independent studio. You retain the name, but for example, in the case of Bungie, you lose the IP. so that's interesting to me. And do you think there's any other examples of? Um, second-party studios that you know change your mind and be like, well, we, we don't want to have anything more to do with you guys. We want to be independent again.
2: Well, Rare is an interesting example because they didn't do that. They actually switched. They started off as an independent developer. I mean, I, I had a relationship with them back in the day, and we're talking about 1985 or thereabouts, 1985-86. Um, and uh, I still have a letter uh, from them about me Potentially going to work with them.
0: I don't think you're breaking any NDA. Twenty two years later, so thirty
2: two years later. Oh man! Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's not two thousand (laughs) and seven (laughs) anymore. (laughs) No, we're not in Kansas anymore either. Oh no! (laughs) Uh,
2: So yeah, I've I've got a letter from them saying, you know what? We're just about to do this exciting thing in Japan you should come and work with us come and visit our studio and whatever and i thought nah i'm a big shot i don't need you (laughs) what a loser (laughs) biggest regret of my life anyway so um this is the point at which they started to look at uh japanese consoles and move away from the spectrum scene so they were independent they had kind of different names they started off as ashby computers and graphics um they were based in a, a little town in Uh, I think it's fair to call it the Midlands. I could be wrong. Um, English listeners can pull me up on that. No no problem at all. Anyway, Ashby, Computers and Graphics, ACG, those letters were immortalized in many Spectrum games. But then, they started to work with Nintendo. What they did was they reversed engineered the first Nintendo and they got a meeting with Nintendo. They went out. Nintendo was so blown away by what they'd done. They said, you know what? How much do you want? Make stuff for us. And they did. And boy, did they make stuff for them. To begin with, Quietly. But their real achievement came when they started using silicon graphics machines to make Donkey Kong Country. Because they did the graphics for those on, oh, sil- yeah. on Silicon Graphics machines for the SNES. So the NES stuff, most people didn't really get to know too much about, but once they hit the scene with with Donkey Kong Country on on the SNES, they were global news and they became huge. But they were still kind of second party Nintendo and Nintendo had bought, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a 49% stake in them. So they were still majority owned by the original directors, the the stampers. And then what happened is Nintendo kind of lost interest and um, the the original directors decided to put the company up for sale to other bidders. And I think it might have been Activision who were close to doing a deal for buying them out, but they they kind of, that whole thing fell apart. And Microsoft stepped in with, I remember when the news came in, I think it was $375 million. I don't know which currency it was, probably dollars. What difference does it make? $375 of anything is a very big number. So they were laughing, they were minted, and then they started doing Microsoft stuff and that's where they are now.
0: Yeah, but, that's when they, when they did, for the 360, I think they did the uh, Cameo game. Uh, so like the colorful one where you were like, uh, yeah, Viva Piñata. And they did Viva Piñata, they did, Pinata, they did uh, cam- Cameo Elements of Power, I think it was called, and then they tried to reboot Perfect Dark, I think, Perfect Dark Zero, maybe mm-hmm. it was called, back in the Xbox days, yeah, but they did, they never actually found the same success that they had when they were under Nintendo, I think. I think that's
2: fair. I think once you've got 375 million of any currency... um. Your your motivation might wane a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> um, mine yeah. would uh, with with that. Then you oh, are. You know what? Do I do I really want to be making another video game? Why don't I try kite surfing or something? I don't know. I'd, just a thought. So yeah, I mean, there are lots of developers out there who who go through different types of relationship. So if we look at it instead of as a definition, if you look at it as a relationship. Because relationships can change. They're not permanent, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. set in stone. And you can morph, you can go from independent. And sometimes a developer can be created. That is first party to begin with. The only developer you don't create, this is the exception, is a second party developer. This is why I said you never really should call yourself a second party developer. It's just a relationship. So when something is created, it is either created... As a first party you're a third party and a third party can become a first party or a second party. Right. Yeah, no one can set
1: out to be a second party developer because that doesn't exist. It is a
2: contract essentially. Exactly. Yeah, right. you got
0: it. It's like the first law of video game physics a second party developer is never created only called so.
1: <laughs> it happens to you. <laughs> it happens to you. You it's don't make it happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is it is a state that is imposed upon you. Alright, I want to talk about the differences and the benefits and, and disadvantages of being first or third. But before we do that, let me thank Blue Apron for supporting this week's show. They're the number one recipe delivery service that has the freshest ingredients. And for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes with fresh, high-quality ingredients to help you make delicious, home-cooked meals. Every Blue Apron meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less blue apron sets the highest standards of quality for their ingredients whilst also helping to build their home community of Chefs, You can choose from a variety of new recipes every week, or you can let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. No recipes will be repeated within a year, and right now you can choose food like sweet and sour salmon with bok choy and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, or mushroom and Swiss cheeseburgers with roasted rosemary potato wedges. I have not had my dinner yet, and I am reading these, and I I just want to just leave the show now and go cook because all of this stuff sounds incredible and the great thing about about like about blue apron is when you'll be getting these deliveries every week and you'll be doing what it says on the recipe cards and after a short period of time you're going to l- learn new skills you're going to build new skills your knife skills will get better like you'll be able to just make food yourself Better than you could before. Trust me on that one. Blue Apron delivers to 99% of the continental US. There's no weekly commitment. You get the deliveries when you want them, and their freshness guarantee means that every ingredient arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get three meals for free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash remaster. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So go to blueapron.com slash remaster and we thank them for their support of this show and relay FM Blue Apron a better way to cook. So let's if we just start with the point that it is maybe easier for a first party developer to make better games. Right? Or like it's more more likely. Let's just start with that idea, right? Whether it's true or not, but like, you know, we started this discussion today by talking about two of the best games of the year so far, right? Horizon Zero Dawn and and Zelda. And then you look back and we've already spoken about Halo and Uncharted and The Last of Us, right? Like these games that are considered to be some of the best video games of the last few years. We mentioned Forza, right? Games like that. What is it about being a first-party developer that can let you be in this situation to make these great games is it resources is it access to the console early is it access to the developers and like from hardware and software that they have access to each other like do they help that it worked like do the hardware makers of the consoles the console creators work with the first parties and vice versa
2: like what is it that that gives them a leg up The biggest single reason is focus. If you imagine every device as a point on a circle, Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily on the circle. It could be at any point within the circle. And the further out that point is from the center, the more complex a technology. So a device like an iPhone might fall say a little bit away from the center of the circle but a device like a ps4 pro falls right on the edge of the circle and a device like a top top end beast pc with water cooled everything is maybe right outside the circle or maybe you
1: have like you have your your playstation kind of like in the middle but the xbox is in the middle but on the opposite side Right. So, like, whilst they're a, a similar kind of complexity,
2: they're completely different. Right? Yeah, of course. Okay, they They could be very different, even if they have similar architectures. Because they will have different limitations depending on how they were built. And because of that, when you build the architecture, not just for the game, but for the engine underneath the game, you have to bear in mind the strengths and the weaknesses of that device. So, Enter the likes of Unity, Unreal, and so on, who make, this is probably a little unfair. You could say lowest common denominator, but that actually isn't true. What tends to happen is that these companies work very hard to optimize each engine for each device. Having said that, they share a common core. They share a common way of working and they have to cope with a whole bunch of different types of game. They have to be extraordinarily flexible. And what is the cost of flexibility? Performance. And also it means some of the most important features to a platform for its strategy, for its ongoing and developing strategy, might not be the focus for the engine creators. So the advantage you have as a first-party developer is you get to streamline your development effort to create something that is totally ruthlessly focused on the hardware of the device that you're targeting. You know exactly its dimensions. You know exactly its limits. And if you're first party, you might have a little bit more of a window in terms of uh, when you get started, as you correctly pointed out. Because One of the important things you do as a first-party developer is that you create games for launch. Now, it's not actually a secret from third parties. It's just that traditionally, third parties have a suck-it-and-see approach to every new device. For a platform, that would be suicide. You can't just rely on the third parties to support you at launch. You need to have stuff that showcases your machine.
1: I guess the first party starts at day zero, right? Like They're starting
2: so early. Well, they start at day minus two, you know, yeah, yeah. because mm-hmm. they'll start on versions of the machine that don't even resemble the final hardware. Oh, yeah. It's just like boxes of cables, right? I assume. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in terms of power as well, sometimes right. these things that they're developing for, I remember the first few versions of the PS3 uh, dev kit were so underpowered. It was a joke. They didn't even have the GPU. So it was there was almost no point. But people were doing <laughs> stuff for it. Who needs graphics? <laughs> yeah. Who needs graphics, right? So... That's the thing. You get to focus on the one thing. And because consoles in the past, because we're talking primarily about consoles here, have had reasonably long lifetimes, if you're a first-party developer, you get to iterate on a single device. So the amount of experience and the amount of knowledge that you build around this device becomes unmatched. It's very hard for a third-party to match that focus and to match the excellence, particularly when you start to heavily tune your engine for the game that you're making. And I would say the greatest example of that today is Naughty Dog. I'm not just saying that because of my previous connections. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it because I legit think that their tech is just stellar. It's absolutely mind-boggling how much it does and how much it squeezes out that hardware. You play yeah. anything else and you think, how come you guys aren't getting it? You know, And the reason is simple, because they've been around forever. They've kept the same people for a long, long time. They iterate and iterate and iterate. They get better and better and better because they're able to retain focus. But,
1: okay, so what about a third party then? What advantages do you have as a third party developer that a first party developer does not have, or even a second party developer?
2: The advantage you have as a third party is access to a much, much bigger market.
1: Yeah. You can pitch, right? Yeah. You know, and and you can like get into bidding, like put
2: platforms in the bidding wars and stuff. You could do that. And and the largest, uh, certainly the largest third party publishers do that. You know, they will show their wares around to all of the platforms. But, you know, if you're a third party with some great game ideas... Maximizing revenue is your is your goal. And to do that you want to hit as many platforms as possible. So if you're a developer, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a developer, the the great thing would be to be able to rework something for another device and take advantage of its foibles. It doesn't always happen, but it does happen sometimes. You know, you get to remaster if you like the game for a different Platform yep. and take advantage of, of completely different uh, facilities available to you.
1: Well, the Switch is a great example of this, right? Yeah. They're, they're, especially with indie games, there are a bunch that are coming with multiplayer that is only on the Switch, or they're coming with like the, you know, I know a HD Rumble is not the, the biggest thing, honestly, um, but like it's, it's especially the multiplayer stuff, right? Where like uh, Overcooked has like the local multiplayer with like the four person local multiplayer, and Shovel Knight. Launched with the multiplayer for everyone, and you know stuff like that, and and yeah, that 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 is an interesting thing
2: for sure. And you have the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. But here's the other thing: you've got the freedom to do. You've got the freedom to dump a platform you don't like, right? Yep. You know, let's say something is not doing that great, or let's say your engineering efforts aren't paying off, or le- let's just say that that the platform is no longer supporting that device in marketing terms, the way you would like. Maybe they've moved their strategy. Maybe their strategy doesn't suit yours anymore. And, and so partners can lose favor and gain favor. And when I say partners, in this case, I'm talking about first parties because, of course, look at Nintendo. They lost the favor of some third parties and they had to work very hard with
0: Switch to regain that. Yeah. Do you feel that becoming a second-party uh, game studio is something that most developers aspire to? Or is it just something that happens and, you know, everybody's happy? Or do you believe that some companies make games with the objective, with the ultimate goal of we got to get noticed by Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo and we want to become part of them? We want to enter with an exclusive relationship with them? I think there are
2: a very small number who who look at the world that way. Mm. What tends to happen is that they, of course, they want platform interest. They Mm. want their game to be supported. They want their ideas to be supported. The platform has to make some kind of offer that makes them not just happy, but secure. So they know that they can develop this game and they will launch it. Because here's the risk. Let's say the platform decides that your game is not good enough and you're about a year in. Well, not only are you in a difficult position with the platform, but you've lost a year that you could have been working on a game for another platform. So it's when you're tied down to just one party, you have to be You have to be totally focused in order to make the relationship work, not just the game work, but the relationship, because relationships change, people within companies change, and because of that, things can go sour. So you have to watch out for that as a developer. So I don't think every developer aspires to it. I think it does happen as a result of interest. And it also depends on just how cool and appealing that uh, platform is in the marketplace, And, you know, PlayStation for a while has been a very appealing partner. Apple has been a very appealing uh, partner. Mm -hmm. In the past, Microsoft was an incredibly appealing partner. And I'm sure they they are still an appealing partner and they are becoming increasingly appealing. Nintendo have had a reputation in the distant past of being very hard to work with. They worked hard to try and turn that around. So it is very much about relationships too, but the relationships aren't enough if the platform itself doesn't have that positioning in the marketplace that's why it was so hard for nintendo to get the third parties back they had to convince the third parties that the device and the marketing and the campaigns and everything that they were doing around switch was going to be different this time
1: right so why are why do platforms like why do Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft, why do they want to have these first party relationships? You know, whether they're creating their own studios or buying studios,
2: like why do they want that? What is good for them in having this? That's a great question. Ultimately, it boils down to the strategy of control because every platform has a strategy about where they want to take their device or their device family. And they can't control that if they don't have control over some software at least. They need standout titles that showcase their devices in a spectacular way. They can't force third parties to do this because it's usually an economic uh, obstacle to third parties just to focus on, Stuff that isn't necessarily strategic for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you're Sony, if you're Microsoft, if you're Nintendo, you want to make sure that particularly at launch, but definitely to drive the sales of the platform over its life, that you have showcase titles that showcase the strategy for that platform at whatever stage of the cycle you're in. I thought, what better way to wrap up this show than to ask the incomparable Shuhei Yoshida, president of Worldwide Studios at PlayStation, what does make first-party games so good? He told us today, the devs and the company culture to encourage and support teams working on new IPs and ambitious titles.